0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church This teaching is from the series Jesus the King who came to die a study of the Gospel of Mark This dynamic fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah God's Son the King who came to suffer and die to save his people We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today we're going to be looking this morning at Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. You can follow along uh, in your Bible. We also have it there in your booklet, and everything will be up here on the screen. I'm going to be using, um, I was asked recently, I used the 1984 version of the New International Version, that, that translation of Scripture. But this morning, I'm actually going to throw up some verses from the ESV as well, and you'll see why um, as as I try to look through, because Jesus does some play on words in this passage that it's impossible to capture in a single English thing. There's just no way to try and do that, so I'll be talking about that in a little bit. So Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. Hear now the words of your sovereign Lord. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. There were three people that lived around the year 200 uh, A.D. uh, in the Roman Empire. Uh, One was named Septimus Severus, one was Perpetua, and one was Felicity. Do we have any fans of Septimius Severus out there? None of y'all? Does anybody know who Septimius Severus was? He was the emperor of the Roman Empire. And actually during his time, he was shortly after Marcus Aurelius and Commodus. So if there are fans of Gladiator out there, that movie, not exactly a fully historical movie, but he was the next emperor after Commodus had been the emperor and came in. Severus was a powerful uh, emperor. He actually expanded the empire back. He went back up in England and restored Hadrian's Wall and even extended a little bit beyond that. Worked over in the east, defeated what was basically the Persian Empire in some major battles, did it. Um, was generally a successful emperor, uh, but... Part of what he was doing was the Roman Empire was so massive, he was looking for ways to keep it united. And one of the things he did, which was very common among the emperors, is he said, basically, I don't care who you say you're worshiping as long as you just worship all the gods together so that we can, we can mash all of us together. He basically took all of the religions that had been there, them threw them into a blender, put it out, and said, everybody worship along this way, and as long as you'll do that, we won't have a problem. The issue is there was a group of people that did not go along with that, which were Christians. Because they said, well, we can't worship the other gods. They're not really gods. Only the God of our Lord Jesus Christ is the two God." And so there were two women during this time named uh, Perpetua and Felicity. Perpetua was a rich woman. Felicity was actually a slave. And they were throwing a birthday party uh, in honor of Severus's birthday, and nothing says birthday like let's martyr a couple of women. But that's what they decided to do. And so Perpetua and Felicity were actually martyred. They were put to death. They had been a- in prison for a while. They knew it was coming. We actually have a writing on the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicity. And they actually died with joy and said, doesn't matter because You can kill this body, but we are going to be raised and we're going to live in eternal joy. And so though they died broken and martyred, they died with joy. And in fact, they are actually honored. Many churches that follow a church calendar have feast days and celebrations for these two women who were early martyrs. When we went to the catacombs in Rome, there were actually carvings in some of the catacombs regarding Perpetual Felicity. They became quite well known. Severus, on the other hand, when he died, at the height of his power, he had suddenly caught an illness, he knew he was getting sick and dying, and his words near his death were, I have been everything, and everything is nothing. A little urn will contain all that remains of one for whom the whole world was too little. Wow why how can that be well jesus actually expre- uh teaches us this morning he explains why that paradox is and what we're talking about is we're going to be looking at the disciples cross so i want to take a step back for just a moment for those who haven't been here as we've been going through mark's gospel and remind us what is happening you remember in this section Peter, for the very first time, as the first person in the Gospel of Mark, that when Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter has the right answer and says, you're you're the Messiah. You're the king. You're the one we've been waiting for. This amazing moment in the Gospel. And then we read in verse 31, in the very next verses, uh, we read, Jesus says, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. So Peter says you're the king. I figured it out. And Jesus says you're right, so let me explain what it means that I'm the king. Because I'm the king, I'm going to suffer. Because I'm the king, I'm going to be rejected. Because I'm the king, I'm going to be put to death. And what is Peter's response to that? Oh no, Lord no, 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 you do not understand Jesus. That is not what's going to happen. Okay, you remember? So we're actually told he rebukes Jesus. Very strong word. And Jesus says, oh, thank you for correcting me, Peter. Right? What is Jesus' response back? He rebukes Peter back and says, get behind me. He's saying, you don't have in mind, you're not thinking in the ways of God, you're thinking in the ways of men. And so he has laid this out and, and he says, look, I, I have to do this. I must suffer many things because as we saw last week, we went back and looked at Isaiah 53, the whole Old Testament had prophesied that actually when the Messiah came, when the Son of Man came, when the second Adam came, he was going to have to bear the penalty for our sins. Uh, he was going to have to walk the way of the cross and only then would he receive the crown. And so I give this background because it's imperative. The reason Jesus rebuked Peter so strongly is the disciples have to understand this because if they have a wrong view of what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, they're going to have a wrong view of what it means to be a follower of the Messiah. If you have this, this, political, triumphant view of what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, you're going to be expecting certain things to follow for you that are his disciples. And if you've read the Gospels, we see how often this goes. It's going to continue on where James and John are like, hey, we're going to Jerusalem and when we get there, you're going to sit on your throne and we just want to know, can we sit on the right and the left? You remember and Jesus has said, and see, you, you're still misunderstanding who I am and what's going to happen to me. And oh, you're going to be with me but it's not going to be quite what you think. So that's what Jesus is delving with to in this passage. But what's really interesting is he doesn't just continue speaking to the disciples. All we've been hearing about is kind of Jesus off with the disciples, but suddenly Mark tells us when this conversation happens, there's a crowd nearby. And notice what we tell, what we read in verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone wants to be my disciple, this is what it means. So notice what Jesus is saying here is that the way of the cross is not just for the Messiah. It's not just for the 12 apostles. It's not for a few super saints. Who's the way of the cross for? Anybody who wants to be a follower of Jesus. It is for all followers of the Messiah. And so he's saying they have to know this. If anyone wants to be a disciple you're going to have to walk the way of the cross. This is not some second stage he's saying. This is not how you get, you know, it's not, wow, perpetual felicity. they had to walk the way of the cross. I'm so glad I don't. Then Jesus would say, then you're not my disciple. Because to be my disciple is to walk the way of the cross. And notice, he begins to explain why here in verse 34. If anyone would come after me, he has to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, this is one of the places where it's a little hard in English, but the word come after me and the word follow me are the same verb in Greek. And if you think about it, you can understand why, but it's the, it's the same verb that's going on here. Jesus is saying, look, this is the essence of discipleship. A disciple is not somebody who gets, you know, my mail order letters and comes. It's somebody who actually follows me. The word disciple means learner and back then the most common way of teaching this is you know with uh, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle they would walk around while they taught and the disciples literally walked behind them. They followed them. That's how the teaching happened. So instead of me standing here and people sitting out there we would be walking in a crowd, and one person would be teaching and the others are asking questions and then learning. And so he's saying this is the essence of being a disciple is that you follow me. But because a disciple is a follower, if Jesus is walking the way of the cross, then where do disciples walk? The way of the cross. You you can't be a follower if he's walking the way of the cross and say, but I'm going to be walking the path of no struggles, no problems, nothing but, you know, bliss. It doesn't work work that way because the master is actually walking on the way of the cross. So every disciple has to do this. To refuse the way of the cross is to renounce being a disciple of Jesus. It says, Lord, you came up, but now that I know you're going to walk the way of the cross, thank you, it's been good, but I'm going to take a different path. Because the disciple, I mean, the master is walking the way of the cross. So what does it mean to walk the way of the cross? What is he talking about here? Now, the New Testament is rich in teaching on the cross. There are multiple different aspects. And in After Hours, the little video that I'll make this afternoon, and it'll come out on Tuesday, I'm going to talk about the the different aspects of the cross in the New Testament. We're going to be talking about one of those this morning. So when we're talking about the way of the cross, we're talking about this aspect of a disciple's cross, what the disciple's cross is. And notice Jesus here gives a couple of terms to describe it. Number one, the way of the cross is the way of self-denial. Now, this is challenging enough if Jesus said the way of the cross is that you have to deny things that you might like to yourself. But notice, that's not what he said. What do I actually have to deny? Myself. I'm not denying things that I like to myself. I'm actually denying my very self it is the very denial of myself it is the very denial of my own desires even my deepest desires it is the denial of my own identity so that i can take up the identity and the desires of the kingdom of god now this is critical for us to understand the way of the cross is not that i periodically or even consistently say gee I like red meat, but I've given up red meat to be a disciple of Jesus. Okay, that's not what this is. This is saying, I have my own identity, my own desires, my own way of doing things, the way I think of myself and what I want and what I want to run after. And Jesus says, at that exact place, that has to be submitted to the kingdom of God. That has to be denied, and instead you take up the way of the cross. And even if Jesus were to give me back some aspect of what it was I was desiring, it is always at his will and his pleasure. Now, hear this. This runs directly counter to our age. Our age tells us the purpose of life is self-fulfillment. Jesus says life is self-denial. Our age says the purpose of life is finding, embracing, and expressing your authentic self. If you read and listen today, that's what everything is about. That that if you if you know your authentic self and you in any way deny that, curb that, don't express that, and demand that everybody else applaud that authentic self, then you are actually hurting yourself. Jesus says if you actually find that, embrace that, express that, you're hurting yourself. The way to real life is denying what you think of as your authentic self. Now, why does he say this? We're going to keep unpeeling that this morning. But notice what he goes on and says is the way of the cross leads to suffering, rejection, and even sometimes death. Now, notice he's here saying, take up your cross. But what Jesus has just told them, because he's paralleling everything with the disciples, what they can expect and what he's going to expect, What he had said is, I'm going to suffer many things, I'm going to be rejected, and then I'm going to be killed. And he's saying, look, if you're my disciple and you're my follower, don't expect they're going to treat me one way and then treat you a completely different way. It doesn't work that way. However they are treating me, you can expect the same treatment yourself. And this is imperative because today we probably have a, a, a number of ladies here who are wearing cross jewelry, right? Maybe even there's some guys doing it. Maybe there's a guy who's got a tattoo with it. But please understand this. The cross was not a piece of jewelry. It was not a metaphor for unpleasant experiences. You know, well, I was sick this week, but it's just my cross to bear. That's not. When you said cross in first century Israel, what did that mean? You see, that is how the Romans express and enforce their domination and their control over us. If you cross the powers that be, if you do not get in line with the program, you will end up toting a crossbeam down through town and they will nail you up. It is an instrument of torture and death saying, you best learn to keep in your place and embrace what we tell you you are to embrace. And Jesus is saying, you can't go along with that program. You may not do that and be my disciple. So those who follow Jesus, denying themselves in the ways of this age, are always going to find themselves at cross purposes with the age. We are going to find ourselves pressured to abandon the way of the cross. It doesn't matter what age, what culture, what time, because the way of the cross is always going to be counter to the way of the world, Always. And so it can lead to social rejection. It can lead to loss of prestige. It can lead to loss of employment. It can lead to imprisonment. It can even lead to death. That's perpetual infelicity. felicity. They lost everything. And it didn't matter that one was a slave. It's not as if they said, well, we're going to do this to the slave, but you're wealthy and connected, so it won't happen to you. No, you're, you're going to walk the way of the cross, We will not have that. And then Jesus comes back and says, the way of the cross is again experiencing the same rejection and suffering that Jesus did. So notice again, the third thing is follow me. If you want to come after me, and he uses the same verb again, but he's saying, look, this is just what it means to be a disciple. A disciple follows the master, and if he walked the way of the cross and received suffering, rejection, and even death, the disciples have to expect the same. And Jesus uh, described this in Mark 10, 24 and 25. He actually put it this way. I'm going to quote just out of the ESV here. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant Above his master, It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. That's the goal of a disciple, right? I'm trying to become like this person who is my master. If I were an apprentice and learning, whether it was construction work or electrician work or whatever it was that I was learning, my goal is to become as good as the master, to become like the master. But notice what Jesus says. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, Satan, How much more will they malign those of his household? Don't think they're going to think terribly things about me, but they're going to love you. If you're the disciple, they're, if anything, probably going to treat you worse. They're going to reject you because you are following me. So this means when followers of Jesus suffer rejection, persecution, and even martyrdom, they're not being forsaken by God. They're receiving the same exact treatment as Jesus did, and, and we're going to come back to this at the end, they're going to receive the same reward that Jesus did. They're getting a reward from this age, which is suffering and rejection and persecution, but they're going to receive a reward from God. So when you think of this for a second, We often refer to followers of Jesus today as Christians. What does the word Christian mean? It means little Christ. That's what it actually is. It was originally a derogatory term in the New Testament. The followers of Jesus at Antioch were first called Christians. It was a derogatory term. That's become our thing. But the point is, if you are a little Christ, and the true Christ received suffering, rejection, and death, what should we expect? the same thing. Now the good news is it's a little thing because as we saw last week in Isaiah 53, Jesus actually didn't deserve it and Jesus actually had to bear eternal wrath and punishment for our sins. You and I are never going to have to do that. But just as the master has received suffering, rejection, and death, we shouldn't expect anything other. Now One might say, well, then why would I want to be a disciple? And Jesus is going to give us here four reasons, four benefits of the way of the cross. Now, at this point, I mentioned I'm going to throw up the ESV here because the NIV, in English, we don't like repetition, saying the same thing over and over again. That's one of the differences. In Greek, they like saying the same thing over and over again. So what is good Greek is bad English. And so sometimes when they're translating we want to use some variety, but I want to point out here and show Jesus has four sentences or clauses that actually begin with the Greek word for four, okay? Um, it's it's the Greek word da, uh, or da. And notice it begins, there's four times here, verse 35, verse 36, verse 37, and 38. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to... I'm going to give you the reasons. Why should you do this? Why would you want to do it? Let me describe to you four reasons why you should try and do it. And so I'm going to use the ESV here so we keep that, that word for in front of us. We've seen the cost. Jesus is saying here's why the cost is worth it. Reason number one, the paradox of finding and losing life. This goes back to what I kind of began with. Notice what Jesus says in verse uh, 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now this is a paradox. We think the way to save our life, to get our life, to find true life is actually through self-seeking. But Jesus says that actually causes us to lose life. And rather, if you're willing to give your life away, if you are willing to suffer this rejection and even death for me and for the gospel, you're going to find that you get true life is what's going to happen. Now, it is a paradox, but please understand the reason it is this way is because reality is based on the character of God. And God is a giving being. He, everything is an overflow of his abundance. He does not seek and grasp, he gives away. Eternally, before there even was creation, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were in a relationship of love and honor and preferring and giving and overflowing towards one another. And then that spills out into creation. And God cares for creation. And Jesus even tells us, even if you are wicked and ungrateful, It still rains for you, you still get sun, you are still cared for, even in this fallen, broken world. And so, if you and I come in and we are made in the image of God, and we say, well, here's what I'm going to do, rather than being giving, I'm going to be taking. Rather than there being an overflow, and as we say every week, rather than me being blessed to be a blessing, I'm going to take it and hoard it to myself, what ends up happening? The paradox is you not only don't grow, what you have dies. I've used the analogy many, many times that the Jordan River flows into the Sea of Galilee and it flows out, and behind it there is life everywhere, abundant life. It flows into the Dead Sea, it does not flow out, and what's in the Dead Sea? Right, it's aptly named, right? There's nothing there. Because those who try to hoard to themselves find it ends up producing death. So I remind you of of the words of Severus. I'm actually going to throw them on the screen this time. Severus, I have been everything and everything is nothing. A little urn will contain all that remains of one for whom the whole world was too little. I've taken, I've taken, I've grabbed, I've pulled to myself, and I've come to the end and it's nothing. It's nothing. I thought I was going to be everything and I'm going to fit into a little urn. How many of you know that is not how you want your last thoughts to be? And this guy had everything. But you don't have to go to Septimus Severus. You can go back to the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Here's here's basically the lesson of Ecclesiastes. The teacher says, look, I I thought it might be earthly wisdom, so I sought wisdom, didn't quite work. I I ran after pleasure. I had complete wisdom riches and wealth i had great position and reputation and honor and i had power and i discovered what's the phrase he uses over and over again in the book it's all meaningless vanity of vanity it is empty there is nothing there that's what he goes over and over and over again in the book because he's showing you i've tried every way You might have thought it was power. Well, I tried power. You might think that it's riches. You might think that it's pleasure. He's going through and saying, I've tried everything that people want to do and none of it works. And so Jesus says the first reason that embracing the cross is right is that a self-seeking life ends in emptiness and it's actually a forsaking of true life. So that's reason number one. Now the next two Jesus kind of combines, and it's the value of life and the soul. Now, I'm putting up here both the English Standard Version and the Christian Standard Bible. And the reason is, you notice, notice they say, What good is to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And the other one says, What good is to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his life? Well, why are they doing that? The reason is that the, the Greek word behind those is suke, from which we get psychology and all of those kinds of words. And the, the word suke has many different lo, uh, meanings. It can mean just my physical life. It can mean more my spiritual life. It can refer actually to my soul, the immaterial part of my being. And so if you notice here in verses 35 to 37, all four of these times I have highlighted are all the word suke okay? And so in verse 35, Jesus says, whoever would lose his life or or would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. Both times, life is suke. So you could translate it, and a few translations do. Who would uh, save his soul will lose it, or whoever will lose his soul for my sake and the gospel will save it. But you kind of hear, well, I'm not really losing my soul by seeking after the gospel. I'm actually saving it. And so Really there, the idea is pretty clearly my physical life. If I'm trying to save my life, and so I'm willing to compromise on Christ and the gospel to save my life, Jesus says you're actually going to end up losing it. But if you're willing even to have your physical life end for my sake and for the gospel, you're actually going to save it. But notice as you move into verse 36... What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul, or as the Christian Standard Bible says, forfeit his life? Because if you kind of follow the plan where Jesus is doing, what Septimius Severus found is, I gained the whole world, and now I'm dying. And so if I told you, you can follow this path, and it is guaranteed that at the end of this, five years from now, you will rule the world. Not even just like Alexander, the Great or Napoleon. You're going to rule the entire globe. And the only thing is you wake up the next morning and you die. Who would take that deal? And you say, well, I'd rather have the little bit that I've got and be alive than get the entire world and the next thing die. And Jesus says, so what profit is it to gain the whole world if at the end of it you're going to just die? And even on that level, everybody would say, That would be a stupid bargain. But the word there is suke, so there's a little bit of a play on words because there's even something bigger. Suppose you could conquer the whole world. Suppose you were powerful and rich and of reputation, and in this life, everything worked out for you. There are people who indulge and indulge and indulge, and it seems like life works well. But at the end, you die, and when you die, what if I've gained the whole world, and in the process I lost my soul? I gained the world, and I lived for years after, but at the cost of my soul. This is—you know—we've got little parables. You remember the—you know—the. Devil Went Down to Georgia is the popular song version of it. There was the devil and Daniel Webster. There's all these literary things where people make this this deal with the devil but the cost is at the end you lose your soul. And Of course when you're reading it you're like dude a fiddle made of gold is not worth it. (laughs) Let me tell you no, don't don't bargain with your soul. But Jesus says that in fact is what can be happening here at the deepest and most profound level. To gain the whole world at the cost of my eternal destiny is utter folly. And notice it's very clear when he moves into verse 37 that by this point, Suke clearly is referring to my eternal soul, the part of me that is you know that that is uh, immaterial but real and. I'm going to be living forever. And Jesus says, what can you give in return for your soul? Nothing else matters. I mean, you know, if we started and somebody said $100 for your soul, any takers, right? What if it was a million dollars? Or what if I gave you this? And we, we start kind of going up. But what Jesus says, if you're thinking clearly, at what point would you say, yeah, my soul's worth that? Never, because no matter what you can be given, life is short. That's what Severus found. And it doesn't matter if I live 100 years, life is short. And Jesus said, if you reject the way of the cross, if you think, I don't want to follow Jesus because it costs too much in the short term, Jesus says, number one, what if you gain the whole world and then you die? But number two, what if you've done all that, but the cost of rejecting me is your soul? There's no bargain worth that. And that leads to the final reason Jesus gives us, which is the second coming of Christ and final judgment. Notice verse 38. He says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, uh, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in his glory with his Father and with the holy angels. So see, he's, he's pointing us forward and saying, look, there is a final judgment. I am going to suffer and be rejected and I am going to die, but I'm also going to return. In this age... There are those who seize power and they crush others, but they will not have the final word. See, uh, Perpetua and Felicity were put to death because a Roman magistrate had the power to utter life or death over them physically. But he does not have the final word. In fact, one day, in all likelihood, he's probably going to stand right next to them in front of Christ. And he's going to find out, you weren't really in charge. You were not really running it. And so notice, Jesus says, this is an adulterous and it is a sinful generation. He's taking this as a phrase that's used in the prophets over and over again. And friends, if that generation was adulterous and sinful, what about ours? But see, the reality is every generation is adulterous and sinful because every generation wants its own way. From the garden, when we had everything, but I want more. When you walk that way, the cost is death. Always. It always leads to death. And so This age and the age to come are utterly incompatible. And disciples have to choose, do I want to live for this age or do I want to live for the age to come which comes by embracing the way of the cross? What I can't do is say, well, I want to live for the age to come, but I'll skip the way of the cross thing. To embrace the age to come is to embrace the way of the cross. But please hear me. This is cause for unshakable hope because Jesus is telling him, look, I'm telling you I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die. But that is not the end. I will come back. I will come back in power and glory. If you want to put it the way we can say it now, I'm going to go down to Jerusalem and I'm going to stand in front of Pilate. And he is going to wash his hands And he is going to turn me over to wicked men, and they are going to crucify me. And then the Father is going to overrule. I am going to be raised, and I am going to come back, and Pilate is going to stand in front of me. And those men are going to stand in front of me. And do you want to be standing with me, or do you want to be standing with them? So this is actually an encouragement and an unshakable hope because the Father's way is going to win. The Father is going to overrule. The way of the cross leads to the way of the empty tomb. It leads to the way of eternal life and glory and that's why perpetuum felicity may be broke have given up everything one of them had a child everything seems to be forsaken and they're saying it does not matter because my future is not fitting into an urn my future is ever expanding non-ending growth in glory because that is the gift of the father and when you look and you see that, that's why Jesus says, what, what, why would you forsake this? To forsake the way of the cross is to forsake life. It is to forsake unending glory. That's the call that God gives to us. So how do we apply this? Number one, and we'll be very brief and come to the Lord's table. Do I see the necessity of the way of the cross? Friends, this is, this is unpopular, and I understand why. This is, this is not what will you know, sell millions of books or get all kinds of things out there. This is not what fills stadiums with people. We don't want to hear about the way of the cross. But make no mistake, it is the only way for true disciples of Jesus. It is the only way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer who embraced the way of the cross, stood against the Nazis, and was then martyred days before World War II ended, said this. This is in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. The cross is laid on every Christian. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. If you want to be a disciple, if I want to be a disciple, you are a dead man or dead woman walking. It's the cost. The good news is, is once you're a dead man and a dead woman walking, nobody can threaten you. What difference does it make? Oh, you're going to kill me? I'm already a dead man walking. I already knew that. It doesn't make any difference. So if we want to claim to see that Jesus is the king, we have to embrace the way of the cross. It's the way he walked and it's the path he lays before us. And make no mistake, this is repellent to the world, the flesh, the flesh. And the devil, our three great enemies. The world lives for this age and by its standards, and it craves power and ease now. And it tells you, put everything on now. You only live once. Go for the gusto, grab it, because you don't know about tomorrow. Yes, I do. I do know that there's a tomorrow coming, and I know it is foolish to live for today. But this world doesn't want to hear that. Our flesh wants to be uh, indulged. It does not want to be crucified, right? We, we all experience this even in small ways, right? Tomorrow morning, I'm hoping to be able to jump back out and run. And what is my body going to say as I take those first couple steps? Glory, this is awesome, right? It's going to say, what, what are you doing? Take thine ease, eat, drink, be merry, right? Right? much less real suffering. Our flesh does not want it. And then Satan, remember, in the temptation in the wilderness, he's already offered it to Jesus. Look, you, know, you don't have to do this insane thing of the cross. Just, if you just bow down real quick, you can just hit the ground a couple times, and I'll give it all to you. And Jesus says, no, no, that is not the way this works. Friends, he is offering the same thing to us. It is constant. There are are all kinds of books written promising you if you come to Jesus, everything will be wonderful. You, You will have your absolute best life now. If you're having your best life now, then hell must be awaiting. That's all I can tell you. Because the life to come is far more glorious than anything you can possibly have right now. Okay? And Jesus says, tell perpetuum felicity that coming to Jesus was cost free. It was not. Tell our brothers and sisters we prayed for this morning and that we're constantly praying for. There are more people being martyred now than at any time in the history of the church. There are more Christians suffering now than any time in the history of the church. This is not restricted to thousands of years ago. There is a cost to being a disciple. Do I recognize that? Am I consciously and consistently embracing the way of the cross? But that leads to the second thing that takes us to the table. Do I see the glory on the other side of the cross? Our gospel does not end with the cross. It ends with an empty tomb. It does not end end in death. It ends in life eternal. And we follow the whole pattern. That's why Jesus doesn't just stop and say, let me give you three benefits. No, there's a fourth benefit. I am going to return. And you want to be there and be with me and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. The way of the cross leads to the way of resurrection and glory. This goes to uh, Jim Elliott, who was a well-known missionary in the 1950s, and he and Nate Sain and some other guys were martyred in trying to take the gospel to some native uh, tribes down in South America. And Elliot had said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Here's the bad news. You're going to die. So am I go ahead and embrace it. Unless Jesus comes back, and I could be wrong, but I don't think that's likely to happen in the next few years, just how I'm understanding Scripture, I'm going to be really, really clear. You're going to die. You are going to breathe your last. You cannot keep it. We we, we are on this quest right now. We're going to put microchips in. We're going to take all these vitamins. We're going to do this, and we're going to live forever. No, you're not. Your body is going to die. And so you are no fool if you even lose years or decades of that bodily existence to gain what no one can ever take away. Eternal life. Eternal glory. The best pleasure you and I can have right now is nothing, it's a shadow. Glory, beyond what you can imagine, beyond what I can imagine, and it doesn't last for a day, it doesn't last for a month, or a year, or a decade, or a century, or even a millennium. It goes on and on, forever and ever, and every day is better than the day before. We're not a fool if we give up things in this temporal age for that. So I want to encourage us, do not lose sight of the end of the story. It brings all of life into focus. What we're trying to do in this age is say, here's the equation of life, and we're going to ignore what happens on the other side of the grave. The whole equation doesn't make sense. You've just skipped the most important part of the entire equation. That's exactly what this age does. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't lose sight of that. There is eternal glory. Christ will return. We will be raised. We will be rewarded. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you, when God rewards, it's a reward. It is worth having. And we are fitting ourselves for that now. So we're going to come down to the Lord's table, and as we do, I want to remind us that this reminds us of the way of the cross. Every time we come to the Lord's table, every week, it also is a pointer forward to the eternal feast that we are going to experience and enjoy. It's just a shadow of that, but but we begin to even taste of that now. And it is a time for the Holy Spirit to work in us to strengthen us. So what we're going to do, we're going to begin, if we can stand together, we're going to begin with a basic confession. This is out of 1 Corinthians 15, where the pattern that Jesus has talked about is given by the Apostle Paul. And I've just summarized it in like five or six statements up here. But I want us to repeat this to remind ourselves, brothers and sisters, that this is the gospel of our salvation. And this is the way of the cross and the way of glory. So let us confess the gospel of salvation together. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ was buried. Christ was raised on the third day. Christ appeared to many witnesses. Christ ascended in glory. Christ will come again. Brothers and sisters, if you believe that, you were invited to this feast. Let's go ahead and be seated. And I want to remind you, you can be a visitor here. You do not have to be a member of our church. This is not our table. It's the Lord's table. And thankfully, on that day, all believers are going to get some of the petty arguments we've had as we stand next to one another. And you're going to be fed by the hand of of Christ. If you are looking forward to that day, if you believe what we just confessed, I invite you to come. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood which is poured out so that all of your sins can be forgiven. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to go ahead and pass out the elements. I remind you to take the two cups together. And as we do, Let the Holy Spirit impress upon you both the way of the cross but the way of glory that lays ahead of us. And then we'll take together in just a couple moments. Lord, as we hold this bread in our hands, we are reminded that our Lord Jesus took our full humanity to himself, coming to fulfill our obligations and to bear our sins. And this required him to embrace the way of the cross, which he did willingly, being broken so that we might be healed. So, Father, we take this bread in faith, giving thanks for our Lord Jesus, the only Savior and mediator between God and man. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord, you embraced the way of the cross even when it required your blood to be spilled. But through your death, we have been given life. So Lord, we thank you for your blood which has sealed the new covenant, paid for all of our sin, and made us members of your covenant people forever. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together. As we do so, I'm going to do a closing prayer and benediction. How many of you find it difficult to walk the way of the cross? Okay. This is, this is not a time to be religious. We're going to cry out and I'm going to be asking the Holy Spirit to come upon us and to empower us. This is supernatural. Supernatural. But the good news is we serve a supernatural God. So let's cry out together. Lord, we thank you for the suffering, rejection, and death you bore for us. But Lord, we also thank you that the story did not end with the cross. For you have conquered death. And you are seated at the right hand of the Father. And as the exalted King, You have received every covenant promise, and you have given them to us. We thank you, Lord, that as the exalted king, you have poured out the Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance, and who keeps and sustains us on our way. Spirit of God, empower us to resist the broken ways of this world. Spirit of God, empower us to embrace the way of the cross this week. Spirit of God, enlighten our eyes so that we may see the eternal reward that awaits us when our glorious Lord Jesus returns. Spirit of God, remind us that the struggles of this life are but a light And momentary affliction compared to the glory that will be ours in the age to come. Oh Lord, as we have tasted at this table, strengthen our resolve to labor faithfully looking forward to the great feast that we're going to share on that final day. Lord, we ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus, who was crucified for us, but who now lives and reigns forevermore. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you, and he will make you strong and firm and steadfast. Fast. You are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.